The Stratos is for advisors and studiers. What would troglites do here? Live in the sunlight and warmth as everyone should. Bridge to Walt X. Brace yourself for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris. I, I'm sorry, Scott. My brain just feels really foggy right now. Oh, that's because you are not wearing a mask and you're being affected by the Zenite gas. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are covering the cloud minders here on Enterprise Incidents. And we are very, very excited. Be sure to listen in at the end of our deep dive of this episode. We're going to be joined by one of the writers of the cloud minders, David Gerald who wrote The Trouble with Tribbles, is joining us again. So please stick around for that interview after our deep dive of the episode itself. I really like this episode. What do you think about Pathfinders? Yeah, I, I like it too. I always have. And um, and it's not just because it has one of the most attractive, you know, sexy outfits in the history of Star Trek, which <laughs> it does. Yep. It's also because I really like it. And, and thematically, I really feel like we're back on solid Star Trek ground. I completely agree. While not the peak that it was in, in the beginning of season two or the end of season one, I feel like Star Trek by this point, especially after a couple of clunkers that we've had to do here on Enterprise Incidents, especially the Mark of Gideon, I feel like the Cloud Miners is a rebound. This is an episode I always liked. It's not one that I always watch like some of the others, but when I do watch it, I like it. I think the production design for a late third season episode like this is actually pretty ambitious and it works. Yeah. But I got to admit, for decades, remember we were talking about Who Mourns for Adonais and I was saying how I always referred mm-hmm. to Who Mourns for Adonis? Well, yep. the, other, the other admission here is that for many, many years, probably a couple of decades, I thought the Cloud Minders was the Cloud Miners without the D. It was the miners, and I always refer to it as that because this is an episode that deals with miners. Did you have that problem? Yep, same thing, and it might have been – I don't remember. You know, There's all those things you see of I was today years old when I figured this out. It's in the last three or four years that I found this out. Yeah, it's, yeah. I was the same thing. It was always the cloud of miners up until very, very recently. Well, I can't remember when I had that epiphany, but I think I was just watching the episode and watching, you know, the title card when they come back uh, after the, you know, the opening fanfare. And and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. There's a D in there. The cloud minders. Now, that means a whole different thing. But I think one of the reasons that maybe subconsciously I refer to it as minors without the D was in the James Blish adaptation going back to the early 70s in his book, Star Trek VI, his 25-page adaptation was actually written as the cloud miners without the mm. So oh. that was one of the reasons why. So he made the same mistake we did. So he made the same mistake we he did. But you know what, Steve? If you think about it, it, it really is an honest mistake. But again, this is a, a really strong late third season episode, an allegory about, about class structure. And like you said, Steve, using science fiction to address issues that were just as relevant in 1969 as they are now, perhaps even more so. 
And this is an episode that's loosely based on Fritz Lang's Metropolis and done very, very well. And I think the acting in this episode is really strong. I think Shatner is great. I think Jeff Corey as Placis is great. When the two of them really like start butting heads, you know, you're watching two extremely talented actors at the top of their game. And I must say uh, the ladies are very, very attractive. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So The Cloud Miners was directed by Judd Taylor. It was his fifth of five episodes that he directed, and the story was written by David Gerald, who wrote The Trouble with Tribbles, and Oliver Crawford, who wrote the teleplays for The Galileo 7 and Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. The teleplay for this episode was written by Margaret Arman, who wrote the teleplays for Gamesters of Triskelion and The Paradise Syndrome. So you have writers here who are very familiar with Star Trek, more familiar with it than the people producing the show by this point because the mainstays were already gone. But David Gerald came up with a story outline. Uh, it was called Castles in the Sky. And then what happened was Fred Freiberger and uh, Bob Justman at this point, who was still in the early development of this episode, felt that David Gerald needed some help writing this. So that's when they brought in Oliver Crawford and they co-wrote this story. And then by that point on uh, June 24th, 1968, that's when Freiberger said, you know, maybe we should bring in someone, someone to write this story from scratch, just based on the idea. So they reached out to Margaret Arman, who they were kind of grooming to be a new story editor for Star Trek, much the same way that Roddenberry had Dorothy Fontana, you know, try her hand and, and she became a story editor in the first season. But when Margaret Arman wrote her story outline on August 2nd, the story was called Revolt. She proceeded to a second draft teleplay on October 21st. By that point, it was changed to The Cloud Minders. Arthur Singer, the story editor in the third season, did his rewrite, his final draft on November 7th, and Freiberger did his page revisions on November 11th, 12th, and 19th. The Cloudminders aired on February 28th, 1969. It was the 76th episode to air. It was filmed between November 12th and 20th, 1968. So it was filmed over seven days. So it went one day over schedule. It was the 75th episode to film. It's weird saying that, Steve. Like, this was the 75th episode to film. Yeah. And we're going to top out at 80 episodes of the original series. So the fact that we have, after this episode, only five more episodes of the original series to go, uh, it's a a bittersweet feeling. But the previous episode, The Lights of Zetar, Uh, After they were done filming that, there was a cash surplus left over of about $18,666. So when the Cloud Miners was moving to production, it was actually coming in over budget, and it did cost $197,313, which was almost $19,000 over budget. But because of the surplus after the Lights of Zetar, they proceeded to production and uh, the score was tracked. But I think the production design on this episode is pretty impressive, especially like when they're on the, the, on the platform on Stratus looking over the side and you see the, the clouds moving in the background. I think that's pretty impressive. 
No, I, I think this is and well, and design wise, it's really interesting the choices that were made that seem to be very Star Trekky, but are different from things that we've seen before. Exactly. I also want to bring up the fact that I didn't realize that one of the writers involved in this was one of the guys from Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Because yeah. while I was watching this, I kept going, "Man, there's some similarities with Let That Be Your Last Battlefield." So I think that's really cool that it has that continuity. Oh, very that for sure. Do you want to know some of the things going on in the world? Let's hear it. So in Arkansas at the time and in a whole bunch of other places in the United States, it was illegal to teach human evolution. And on November 12th, the decision of Epperson versus Arkansas went up to the Supreme Court and there was a nine to nothing ruling saying that was unconstitutional. You could not bar the teaching of evolution on November 14th. And it's amazing to me that this was so late is that after 267 years, Yale University announced that it would admit women to its class. My goodness. It's very late. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And at the same time, Yale's sister school, Vassar, said that they would admit men. On November 16th, the USSR launched its the Photon 4, which was the world's biggest unmanned scientific spaceship. It weighed 17 tons. On November 17th is something, have you heard of, I think I had heard of this. It's pretty obscure, but have you heard of the Heidi game on NBC? Never heard of it. So this is what happened. It's a football game between the Jets and the Raiders. There are 65 seconds left in the game. Oakland had the ball. They were trailing 29 to 32. And at that moment, NBC switched over to play the movie Heidi. (laughs) Why? And people were outright because Heidi was scheduled it was time mm-hmm. it was in the tv guide scott and so they switched over and the their you know switchboards were absolutely flooded with people saying what happened in the game what happened in the game and it was and they missed a lot because in those last 65 seconds oakland scored not one but two touchdowns winning 43 to 32 and that is when tv networks changed their policies to we're gonna push whatever's next until we finish our game wait 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 a minute what does that remind you of? What movie does that remind you of, Steve? I, I, I just oh, I had this thought in my head. I'm like, oh, this, this, I don't this know. actually happened. Okay. Remember in the beginning of Poltergeist when, oh, sure. like, when they're watching the football game and then it switches over to Mr. Rogers mm-hmm. and he goes, you know, they both have the same remote control. So one guy's trying to watch Mr. Rogers. The other, the other guys are trying to watch the football game and it keeps switching uh, that's what that reminded me of. Very interesting. But it's different. Well, there you course. go. <laughs> um, on November 18th, Lego, the company from Denmark, had made Lego toys for 21 years without a U.S. patent and not in the U.S. And that is when they filed their patent and started actually making Legos in the U.S. On November 19th, Angelo J. Charlos Litany be- received the Medal of Honor for his actions a year earlier, evacuating 20 soldiers to safety while underfired and severely wounded. And the reason that he's important is that in 1986, he became the first and only American to date to publicly renounce and return his Medal of Honor mm. in protest of U.S. foreign policy. Wow. 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 Yeah. On November 20th, 78 coal miners were killed in an explosion and subsequent CO2 poisoning in a West Virginia mine. And that is, you know, one of those big pieces in the slow evolution of increasing mine safety over time which is still one of the most dangerous jobs in the United States. No question. Um, would you like to get into the show? 
Let's get into the cloud minders with a D. <laughs> so what we start off with is hearing it's a, a, I, another thing I would love to count is how many episodes of Star Trek are about the Enterprise having a mission and they can't complete their mission because of the actual story that's in the episode. You know what I mean? Sure. Where, well, that's what I brought up. Like how many times has the Enterprise actually just explored strange new worlds? <laughs> no. Yeah, and right now their mission is there's some plague that's devastating a planet. It's going to wipe out all the vegetation, which is going to make the planet uninhabitable. And the only thing that's going to solve it is this element called Xenite. And the only way to get Xenite is on Ardana. Ardana. And that is where we're heading. And we hear that the high advisor is ready to receive them on Stratos. And Kirk's like, no, but shouldn't we just go down to the mines to get the Xenite? And he goes, you know what? Tell the advisor we're just going to go straight to the mines, which is a weird choice, I think. Uh, you, you know, it's interesting. Like when when I first saw this episode or, you know, my, my earliest uh, uh, memory of watching this episode is Kirk is asking Scotty and who are like, are we going to Stratus? Are we going to the planet? Like for a minute, I thought he was having a lapse into the deadly years where he just like his memory, <laughs> you know, like was losing his mind. Right. With his memory, but no, uh, they don't have any time to waste. They got to get to Merrick. Two is the name of the planet that is having a botanical plague, and that is why they need the Xenite uh, very, very fast so they can get there, or or all the the life is going to die because the oxygen comes from the plant life. Yeah, the only thing that's weird, and it's totally the minor nitpick, is that like let's say there was some stuff I needed to pick up for us at Costco, and I said, "Hey Scott, come meet me at my place to get the stuff," and you went, "Well, I'm just going to go straight to Costco." It's like, well, I might have already brought the stuff. I might have brought it up to Stratos. Right, right. I have it here, you know. Oh, um, sure. But, like, but just say, no, 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 we're going to go straight to the mines. And so that's what they do. They beam down. Uh, we're in this planet. Now the sky is this kind of red-orange background. And we look up, and there is Stratos, Captain. City actually floating in the sky. Looks as tranquil as its reputation. Isn't it? So Stratos, in the original visual effects... Because, you know, when I watch it, like if I'm watching Star Trek now on Paramount Plus, you know, they show the remastered visual effects, which which I think right. they did a great job with Stratus, uh, you know, making it I look like it did, you know, in the original version. But, you know, making it look more detailed and everything like that. But Stratus was designed, of course, by set designer, the legendary Matt Jeffries, who drew a rough sketch of Stratus without ever drawing a final sketch the city itself was created from green foam, white glue, hacksaw blades, and exacto knives. That was right. visual effects, you know, uh, especially practical effects in 1968 when this was filmed. And the production designers then chopped up the foam and glued it together and put the final shapes on it, finishing it off with wrapping the bottom with cotton, hung it on the ceiling. And that is the image of William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, quote unquote, looking up at Stratus. <laughs> it's so it's so the original effects in particular so remind me of the line in Holy Grail where they look up at the castle and we hear it's just a model because <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it clearly is just a model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a totally intellectual society. All forms of violence have been eliminated. So clearly the image the story told about ardana around the federation is not the whole story absolutely you're right you're right like the the and by the way ardana is a member of the federation and right the the image you're right the image they have is that it is tranquil it is peaceful it is it's artistic and intellectual 
And the Federation has no idea about this complete divide between the life of the people living on Stratus and the life of the people living on the planet's surface in the mines. I literally think they don't know. It's like, it's as if, you know, you just went to South Africa in the 80s and like, wow, this place is really great. And no one mentioned anything about apartheid to you. Exactly. You know? That's a great point. Uh, and they head over to what they think is the entrance of the mine. And the camera does a nice move over the top of these rocks. And the music is creepy. And we know something bad is going to happen. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> some ropes fly over them. And we see them surround. I think this is a really good teaser because... yep. You're 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 thinking like okay everything's fine they're going to get the Zenite be on their way hate to eat and run but you know the dispense with the pledges pleasantries you know we'll we'll catch up on Stratus the next time we're in town uh, and then by the end of the teaser you have Kirk and Spock with with ropes around them and I think it's a really good effect like you see the ropes like you know from off camera get thrown over them and it's I wonder how many takes they had to actually do that. So what like what happened at the same time and looked like it was professionally done. Um, yeah. But the miners are wearing these goggles. Okay. Because, you know, they're not used to the light and right. I was doing some digging, no pun intended, but I was doing some digging, you know, for information and the goggles that the miners wore were reused in Star Trek II: the wrath of Khan. When Chekhov, really? yeah, met Khan for the first time. Uh, that is a really interesting bit of trivia. So in the original outline, when this was called Castles in the Sky, uh, the uh, the story starts off with Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Chekhov, and Uhura. Not Sulu. He's on the Enterprise, driving the Enterprise. They're in a shuttle that is struck by a missile and forced to land in the Undercity uh, which is like a poor 20th century type of slum right. uh, where the Mannies mined dilithium crystals for the elite people of Sky City. So so that that it's completely different. And the way the story plays out is completely different. Uh, you know, I'll get into this when we get to the end, but the story doesn't have the optimistic ending that mm. this episode kind of does. But, uh, you know, we'll get into all that when we get to the end of the episode. So we come back in Act 1, and I have a question, and I'm yes. assuming that there's a reason for this, which is the first shot has Kirk and an image of him, and we hear his voice, but his lips are not moving. What happened? Well, what happened is exactly what you expected to happen. It was a, it was a goof. Uh, it, was, uh, it was looped, and they, they didn't have any coverage for, for the loop shot, so they just used it, and Kirk is not moving his lips, so he's a great my. Uh, but the other interesting bit about the very beginning of Act One is this. So the title card for the Cloudminders looks like an actual shot from space instead of some yeah. matte painting. Well, guess what, Steve? It is a shot from space. In fact, it was a oh. shot from Gemini 4 in 1965 of the Haldramat Plateau Dry River Basin in southern Yemen, and it was tinted red to reflect the red sky of Ardana. NASA, of course, was a very, very big fan of Star Trek. In fact, there's a famous shot, if you can find it, it's in the book Inside Star Trek, of mission control people uh, with little pointed ears taped on their ears uh, in, in the mid-60s. So they were big Star Trek fans, and they were happy to help out Star Trek production with, with something like this when it needed it. It's a really cool shot. It reminds me of some of those shots in 2001 in the Stargate sequence. 
there's some of those flyover shots that it, oh, it sure. kind of reminded me of. Yeah. It's, it's, it looks really cool. We're here by permission of your government council on an emergency mission. Move on, Captain. And as they're talking to him, Kirk does the full two-foot big kick into this guy's chest, <laughs> and we get into a fight scene. You know, what is Star Trek without the fight? So one of the of the uh, miners, which we are which we're going to learn are called troglites, is played by her name's Vana, and she's played by Charlene Polite. And on TV, although she's not very polite in this moment with uh, with Captain Kirk, uh, she was on TV in shows like Hawaii Five O, Cannon, and The Mod Squad. And I was sorry to read that she she died in 1999 at the age of 55. Uh, from breast cancer. Hmm. So I was uh, sad to read that because I think she's really good in this episode. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and it's, you know, as Star Trek fights go, it's an okay one. There's so many times where I'm like, man, Spock is not being very helpful in this <laughs> <Right>. fight. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like Spock's super strength. It's something that gets kind of turned up or turned down based on the needs of the episode. Absolutely. And, and this I, is one where he's not so tough. And, and also like, you know, he could just cut to the chase and do the neck pinch and go over to the other yeah. The others on on Kirk give them the neck pinch and call it a day, but you know you gotta you gotta like let it play out a little bit because it's always it's always you gotta remember that Star Trek was intended to be an action adventure, and if they could put right. the action in and kind of kind of stretch it out a little bit, then that was understandably the priority. Uh, it goes on fairly long, and Kirk ends up basically on top of Vom- Vana wrestling with her, and then we hear the sound of something like transporters, and they're on this platform beam down. Three people from Stratos, including one of our main characters. Our main character on the platform is Plasis. He is the high advisor of Stratos, and he is played by legend Jeff Corey. What a phenomenal career on the small screen and the big screen Jeff Corey has had. In film, he was in old-timers like Superman and the Mole Men and In Cold Blood to True Grit, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and... Beneath the Planet of the Apes, uh, I actually really like that movie. I know a lot of Apes fans don't care for the second one, but I think it's a lot of action. On TV, he was in shows like The Wild Wild West, Bonanza, Hawaii Five-0, Night Gallery. And this is interesting, uh, on top of the fact that he had this incredible story career from 1951 to 1963, like some of the other guests we've had on Star Trek in the original series, Corey was blacklisted after refusing to name names for the House Un-American Activities Committee. During that time, he created the Professional Actors Workshop, where he was a very influential acting instructor, and some of his students included James Dean, Kirk Douglas, Jane Fonda, Jack Nicholson, and Leonard Nimoy. I mean, he's a, one of the classic sort of actors. Did he come out of the actor studio? Because that's kind of an actor studio list. Yeah, you know what? I, I don't know if he came out of the actor studio or he just started his own studio, but but he's like he did have a very very uh, impressive list of uh, yeah. Students. By the way, he's also in a movie that I adore that people don't talk about much anymore that we did do on the Cinephiles, which is Carl Reiner's movie Oh God. Oh, I love Oh God. <laughs> oh God is so good, and I it is a, totally looks like a kind of a fun family seventies movie. And I highly recommend everyone watch it because that movie is deep and has a lot of things to say that are just as like spot on today as they were in 1977 when it was made. I was going to say um, 77. I think that movie came out, but you said yeah, it first. it's 77. 
Yeah, and I think, by the way, it's the same casting director who cast Star Wars, by the way. Oh, is that um, Which I just think is interesting. Yeah, so I think so. It's a great cast, too. Surrender our will, fire! They open fire and get a couple and then go up to Kirk and Spock and say, Are you harmed, gentlemen? No, I'm just a little shaken up. I'm Plasis, high advisor of the Planet Council. And it's obvious right from the beginning that Plasis and what we will see on Stratos, they have a very formal, intellectual way of speaking. <laughs> Unfortunately, violence is habitual with the troglites. But I assure you, this insult will not go unpunished. I think one of the things that makes this episode really effective, again, is the slow build between Kirk and Plasis. Like right now, uh, yeah. Kirk has absolutely no idea of the, the conflict between uh, the troglites and, and the people of Stratus. And I like that there is a slow build that as it progresses – I think by the end of Act Two, Plasis is they've completely turned on each other, and it's like no more Mister Nice Guy. Let's just cut to the chase. Yeah. Uh, but for right now, the pleasantries are still there, even though time is of the essence to get that Zenite and make it to Merrick too. And what I think is interesting is the first thing we heard is that this planet has eliminated all violence. It's a totally intellectual place that just loves their art and stuff like that. And then we're hearing Plasis say, "I assure you, this insult will not go unpunished." And, and that's like violence, right? But then we hear about these people called the Disruptors. A small group of troglite malcontents. All the other troglites are completely dominated by them. It's the Disruptors who are responsible for their refusal to continue mining for Xenite. Yeah, he's really downplaying it, isn't he? And it totally contradicts with what we've been hearing before. I do hope the search will be brief, Mr. Advisor. We'll do everything possible to make it so. And we beam up to Stratus. I, do, I really do think they did a great job with the new effects here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, when they're when they beam up to Stratus, and they look over the rail, and they're looking down at that image again from Gemini Four, yeah. and Kirk, uh, 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 you know, so I, I think it's Spock who says, uh, uh, "Fantastic, uh, uh, incredible display of anti gravity," and and so so they use this this effect back when they did Metamorphosis, where they actually had a cloud above above the house where Cochrane lived. Right. So now, like, this is supposed to be Cloud City. They're in the clouds, and they're standing on the platform behind them. You know, you have this, like, smoke effect going by, and it had to be done just at the right moment for it to look like a cloud, but but not too far along where it would completely dissipate because they're in a, in a controlled studio and people are moving around. You know, you got the air conditioning on and everything like that. So they had to get the shot just right at the right time. And I think that they really did a great job with this. Have you ever been on a movie set where people are blowing smoke around? No, I haven't. It's so hard. It's yeah. so frustrating because you'll, because, because it, depending on the smoke machine and they're different kinds and they're different ones that kind of sit down on the ground, ones that float in the air, ones that disperse faster. There are all sorts of different kinds of smoke that you can do, but they never act exactly how you want them to. Yeah. So yeah. like you press the button and there's sometimes a two second delay before the smoke comes out and then it'll move at whatever pace it moves, depending on how the air is moving in the room. And so you'll, You'll do it like five times trying to get the timing right and the movement right and all that stuff. And you'll get one that just looks perfect and the actor will blow their line. And then the one where the actor is perfect, the smoke just went off of them just a little bit too uh, early or was, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things that, and you just, it's like, you know, when they talk about working with kids and animals, you're just like, okay, this is going to take this. It could work great the first time. It could take five takes. I don't know. We'll yeah, just see right, how it goes. Sure, sure. 
And as they're looking around, in comes this woman in this really remarkable outfit. Gentlemen, one of our planet's most incomparable works of art, my daughter Droxine. Droxine is played by Diana Ewing, who was on TV shows like, not surprisingly, Steve, The Mod Squad. (laughs) Also, Mission Impossible, Love American Style, and The Rockford Files. So here's my question for you. Are you a Vana guy or are you a Droxine guy? Uh, visually or in terms of a character? Because, uh, I'm just saying, like, are look, you, there's you, that, look, you can't be both. <laughs> particularly as a young, young man, Droxine is in the top three or four Star Trek women in outfits for me. Well, yeah. look, so Droxine, that, that the dress, you know, the uh, costume changes that she had, you know, Bill Tice, who was the costume designer for Star Trek, uh, really – Knocked it out of the park uh, with with each one. I mean, he really just was uh, uh, just just she just looked fantastic, and and that's among some of his finest creations that he designed for women. But I gotta tell you, I'm a Vana guy. I just like that she's she's a tough character, and I, I I said this before in some of our prior episodes covering season three that say what you want about the drop in quality of season three. But there were a lot of really strong characters for women, especially in season three. And Shirley Polite as Vana is another one. I thought I liked that she was like the head of the uh, the revolt, yeah. you know. So well, that that is why I asked the question visually or in terms of a character, because visually it's Droxine. In terms of a character, it's absolutely Vana. Yeah, I yeah. think Droxine would drive me nuts. <laughs> I mean, she is she is the epitome of a privileged person who is unaware of the consequences of her lifestyle. Whereas you know? Fauna, I, I, you know, I think Fauna's strength, uh, you know, her toughness is what makes her attractive to me. Yeah. Um, well, there you go. There you go. Scott Mance <laughs> likes tough women. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I have never before met a Vulcan, sir. Nor I a work of art, madam. And the, the, the look that Kirk gives Spock, like, well, he's like, I guess I'm not the only player on the Enterprise, but Spock is immediately just as attracted to Droxine as Droxine is to him. And he sure seems that way. He sure does seem that way. And he also responds to her, uh, you know, very, very obvious attraction with, with, with some flirting of his own, which is it out of character for him? I mean, I've heard people or certainly have read people who've said that Spock is way out of character, especially as this as this uh, next uh, 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 things progress between Spock and Droxine. But uh, I don't think he's that far out of character. I, I kind of like that he's kind of letting down his guard a little bit with her. I think it is out of character, and I like it. Yeah, I mean, I, I just like, cause it's fun. Cause Nimoy's good at it and it's a fun, th- but I don't, it doesn't really exactly match up with who I think this guy is. True. You know, all the flirting that's going on between, between Spock and Droxine that was added into the Cloudminders, not by Margaret Armin, nor was it even touched upon by David Gerald and Oliver Crawford. So Fred Freiberger, you know, he was in a really tough position because NBC was really like pressuring him to like make Star Trek more more appealing to the female demographic. But how do you do that in a way that keep you, you keep Star Trek Star Trek? So the way he did that with this episode was he added this flirtatious banner between Spock and Droxine, mm. 
with the hopes that maybe, you know, just sort of, even though it's not a consummated romance, just having that that fun, flirtatious banter would make the episode appealing to the female contingent of Star Trek at that time. This is our council gallery. It is open to all city dwellers. You know, they say we have some of the finest art for the viewing and contemplation of everyone. And I think this is just one of the first sort of cracks in the 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 facade. <laughs> yeah, there's this cognitive dissonance among the stratos dwellers where like, yeah, everyone can we have this beautiful art and everyone's allowed to check it out. And it never occurs to them that it's not everyone. Right. It's everyone exactly. in Stratos. Again, again, and as the, this is what I like. This is one of the things I that I've that I've liked about some of the past episodes during the peak period is that the complications are a slow build. You know, we're not laying everything out at the top of the teaser or at the top of Act One. You know, you're you're slowly building. You know, you're slowly building up to what the obvious conflict is between the Troglites and the Stratos city dwellers, and you're also building up to the conflict between Kirk and Placis. So, in yeah. in some ways, there the Cloudminders, you know, could have kind of fit in season two because it's strong in that way. Well, and it's, I keep thinking it's funny in our last episodes, it was officially revealed my, my liberal politics. And despite trying to be relatively even handed about this throughout the most of the series, I don't think I can hide it in this episode because this episode is really about class and poverty and to, and about race, depending on how you interpret it. And it's like, if you build the world's most beautiful museum and you make that museum open to the public, totally free, but it's in the rich neighborhood and there's not good plant, you know, public transportation for people that live in the poorer neighborhood to get there. And you go, man, why is this only the rich people that come to this museum? Yeah. And it's like, well, because that's, and then what good effects you want people to have based on going to that museum, they're only going to be happen with a certain group of people that can afford to get there. Right, right, right. Um, and as they're looking at the art, they see one of these, I think they call it a morte or something like that. One of these, you know, mining implements driven into the art. Disruptors again. How dreadful. They're despoiling the whole city. Despoil? For what purpose? Basically, you know, we get that they're terrorists. This is like Loki. You know, yep. they have decided that they're going to damage art and do whatever is necessary to, you know, get their needs met. You're right, Steve. I just... As you said that, you're right about the comparisons between the cloud miners and let that be oh, yeah. the battlefield. And but then you have Oliver Crawford who wrote the teleplay for Battlefield and and wrote uh, an early version of the cloud miners. That is something I never thought about. That's another big revelation. Thanks to Enterprise <laughs> Well, and 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 as we spend time with Vana, now Vana is way more likable than Loki. But she's not that easy to deal with either, you know, right. because she's angry. She has righteous indignation. And I personally, I mean, it's funny. Literally, we just had people throw some mashed potatoes on a on a Monet painting, you know, like, you know, someone destroying art or making a demonstration about, you know, the, the a real thing based on destroying art. I'm not a big fan of, no, I'm you not, know, no one should be. What are the demands? Completely unreasonable, Captain, but nothing you need be concerned with. Yeah, he's really Plasis is really trying to downplay the conflict with the with the troglites, and he's not doing a very good job of it because no. you know Kirk and Spock barely stepped off the platform when they beamed up the Stratus, and they're finding like this morte, you know, lodged into a work of art. 
there is a lot of conflict there. And again, it's going to keep building. Well, and now we get into a discussion about that Ardan is part of the Federation and that they have to deliver this. Zenite is part of the Federation and the conflict between Plasis and Kirk is rising. Why do they destroy art forms? That is a loss to everyone. No, actually, it's only a loss to the people on Stratos. It's not a loss to everyone because they don't have access to this. That's true. But the way that the Stratos dwellers see it is... Art means nothing to the disruptors. This is the only form they understand. Which is violence. And again, I'm like, well, if someone didn't grow up around art, of course they don't value it. Why would they value it? The disturbances accompanying your arrival have been most weary. No doubt you would like to rest. It surprises me that Spock, who never needs to rest, says that would be most welcome. Um, and they guide them away. And now we have Droxine just talking to Plasis. Do you think that Captain Kirk and his very attractive officer will feel that we're responsible for their injuries? <laughs> All this time I thought you were worried about our diplomatic relations. Yeah, if Plasis doesn't seem to mind that she's already like latched on to Spock, but he will later. Well, and it, it's funny too because it's just like, man, she Spock did a little flirting with her, and she is already and, and all it's fun it. too. Yeah, yeah, and it's fun too because Kirk is usually the one who gets the ladies, and it's fun to watch someone not into Kirk and into Spock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then they drag in a troglite, and they remove his shield, and he blinks because he has trouble with the bright sun. Speak! I command you. My business is to repair. I think they do a really good job with this guy of having him just be a little bit slow, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Then you must have a repair permit. Where is it? It was forgotten. Did you also forget your transport card? It was lost when your sentinels attacked me. Again, there are certain places in the world where people need, some groups of people need papers to go everywhere they want to go. And another group of people don't need papers to go everywhere they want to go. I know nothing. I would advise you to increase your knowledge. And then his response is great. Yeah. He says, That is not possible for a troglite. The Strato City dwellers have said it. So he is saying, look, you want me to be smarter. You say I'm not smart. I can't do it. Right. Yeah, he's throwing it back in their face. Secure him to the rostrum. Well, that is too much for him. He just takes a running jump and a leaf over the rail and just uh, plunges to his death. And Plasis and Droxine and the security guards are looking over and he's just like, how unfortunate. Two things about this. I think Droxine is a fascinating character and a great one because she should be horrified by what she just saw. This guy literally just killed herself in front of him. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it's not that she doesn't show that she's upset, but she isn't actually horrified because she doesn't on a fundamental level see this guy as human. Well, this is what she grew up with. This is yeah. just the. This is just the. Con- she was conditioned to accept her society the way it is. So yeah. why should she be horrified if she doesn't know any better or any different? Well, and the other thing is, he, when he says secure him to the rostrum, I assume that's what they have Vana strapped to later in the episode, right? Yeah, that's what I'm assuming too. It's kind of right in the middle of this area. I mean, and, and part of this is that how many sets are they going to build? But it seems like the rostrum is kind of in the town square. It's not like a hidden place, right? Good point. Really good point. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're like, what have they got? To, they're, they're not trying to hide anything. Well, and how often are they torturing people on the rostrum? I would say this is this is not an isolated case. I would say that's what I think happens quite a bit. Yep. Yeah. And I think when we look later on at Droxine, who watches Vana be tortured, 
she again she's not having the oh my god you have to stop this this is terrible reaction right exactly she's, she's just watching it this next sequence is unlike anything is ever seen in star trek ever i agree is that is that kirk is asleep and spock is thinking and we hear it's not a log or it doesn't seem to be it's his thoughts it's voiceover and as he hears voiceover we are dissolving and superimposing different images reflecting what he's thinking about this troubled planet is a place of the most violent contrasts. Those who receive the rewards are totally separated from those who shoulder the burdens. Do you like this? I do. I do like it. Do you? I do. I like it too. But it was not done for artistic reasons. It was done because Fred Freiberger, who was the producer during the third season, felt that there just needed to be something that was a little more, I guess, uh, uh, Clear. A little more exposition. Yeah, it's, and it, it's pure exposition. Yeah, it's yeah. pure exposition, but it was for the same reason that back in the Paradise Syndrome, you hear Kirk's yeah. thoughts or Kirok's thoughts when he's on the planet and he's saying, I have found paradise. Or when he first loses his memory and he's in the chamber, he's like, where am I? Who am I? What are these? Uh, what are these devices? Uh, so – so by the time they got to the cloud miners, Freiberger felt that uh, I think we just need something to just make sure that the viewing audience knows exactly what's happening. I think they would have picked it up anyway. But I also feel like you, like the way it's done, I really like it. So here's the interesting thing. So we had the image of, of Stratus from the original visual effects, which looked like a model, right? Right. And then you have the version of Stratus that was redone for the remastered visual effects, which has a lot more detail, but still yeah. fits in with the production design of Star Trek's late 60s aesthetic. So the way they – if you, if, and I, I always find myself doing this when I rewatch the Cloudminders through the remastered visual effects because when you see Spock sitting there and he's like asleep and he's, he's thinking about the situation between the troglites and the – the Stratus city dwellers, you know, you see the image of Stratus from the original version, and then you see the super, you know, superimposed images of Vana, of Droxine, of them fighting on the planet's right. surface. But for the remaster visual effects, you see Spock sitting there, and then you see the, the version of the remastered Stratus. So how right. did they do that? How did they do this dissolve of superimposing images on top of Spock and, you know, Vana and Droxine and the fighting and, and, you know, make that work with the newer image of Stratus. And if you compare it side by side, they took different shots. They, instead of, you know, when you see Vana, when Spock is talking about Vana in the original version, you see the actress, Charlene Polite, you know, just kind of like, you know, turning and reacting Whereas in the remastered effect, it's basically just like a still frame of her. It's really, really, really clever. Next time we talk to Dave Rossi, I got to ask, how did you shoot that montage for the remastered version of the Cloud Miners? But if you want to have fun, compare the original version of the scene of Spock reminiscing or thinking about the situation to the remastered version. And you'll see that the shots are different, especially to people who've seen these episodes a hundred times. I actually, it's funny. I didn't like the stuff in Paradise Syndrome because I really felt it was unnecessary. And in this one, it's also probably unnecessary, but yeah. I really like hearing Spock's thought process. 
you know, him yeah. thinking through this and, and how he feels about these things. I actually found that really interesting. Here on Stratus, everything is incomparably beautiful and pleasant. The high advisor's charming daughter, Droxine, particularly so. I wonder, can she retain such purity and sweetness of mind and be aware of the life of the people on the surface of the planet? You know, that, that, that term, uh, which I know really bothers a lot of people, but that term privilege, that's what he's talking about with Droxine. Yep, you're you right. Know? She is, I think she is a kind, brilliant, interesting, attentive, artistic, probably great to have a conversation with person who doesn't have a mean bone probably in her body. Right, right. You know what I mean? But because she is unaware that the things that allow her to be all those things are bought by a lot of suffering from a lot of people that she's not really paying attention to or thinking about. You know, that's a really good point because when I think about Droxine now, you know, especially this deep into our, our deep dive of the cloud minders, you're right. She's not, it's not like she knows any better. She just doesn't know any better. So even she would though, never hurt a soul. Right. Uh, she you know does, what I mean? She does seem like a very kind person who just doesn't understand the, the, uh, the stakes of, of the situation that she is, she's in and has been in all this time. She just doesn't know any better. You know, it would be easy to like hate her because she, she's acting so privileged and she knows the situation that she's in is wrong, but she just doesn't know. So even, yeah. even as the episode progresses and you really get into the depth of the stakes that are at hand, you don't dislike Droxine. And then we hear about Vana. He says, The harsh life in the mines is instilling the people with a bitter hatred. The young girl who led the attack against us when we beamed down was filled with the violence of desperation. And I love this, that he connects the two women. If the lovely Droxine knew of the young miner's misery, I wonder how the knowledge would affect her. Great question. Right. Well, and what, what's funny that we find out later is uh, that Droxine knows Vana. Right. Yes. They know each other. I get the sense knows her well, and yet hasn't faced the reality of what happened to Vana after Vana went back to the mines. Right. There's a moment, I'm assuming that you and I are almost exactly the same age. I am assuming that uh, your family probably watched Roots when my family watched Roots. For sure. Vivid memories. I watched it with them. They're one of those vivid memories for me is there's a moment, and I think it's Tizzy is the character's name, and she's grows up as a little girl with a white master's daughter and they're like best friends and then when they see each other as adults there's this moment where the white woman now totally rejects the slave woman that she was best friends with begging your lady's pardon but is your name missy ann reynolds <laughs> nobody's called me missy for over a thousand years i'm kizzy i'm sorry but i i don't recollect knowing any darky by the name of kizzy and i can remember it so viscerally from whatever what is that 79 or something like that 78 79 yeah yeah 78 79 mm -hmm. so i'm like 10 yeah, yeah so mm -hmm. i'm like 10 9 10 years old and i have a, such a visceral visceral memory of that moment and i think about droxine and vana you know that's a good i bet they knew each other a long time you know yeah Roots of 77. Um, yes. No, you're you're absolutely right. That brings the episode to a different level because all you need to know is that they know each other. And 
the, the resentment that Vana has for Droxine is palpable, but, you know, Droxine just feels like Vana is wrong, you know, and she, she just has no right. idea because she's been so sheltered and privileged that she just doesn't know any better. And like Spock said, if Droxine knew of the misery of the miners, how would that affect her? And we see later in the episode that it does affect her because she she is open to, you know, spoiler alert, she is open to, uh, you know, being down on the planet's surface and and going, you know, and exploring the mines and realizing where where she just was so ignorant for probably her whole life. Well, and I think at this moment, she doesn't really see the troglites as human, you know, as as evidenced by the suicide we just saw, and even the torture of Vana that's coming is that she still has to learn that lesson that no, they're just like us. You know, it's funny when, when you said, when you brought up Roots and when you brought up that scene, it made me realize another revelation, something I should have realized a long, long time ago that Cloudminders is not just about class structure and about privilege, it's about race. Because of course it is, absolutely. It is absolutely about race because basically. The, the stratus dwellers are looking at the troglites as another race, not just as miners on a planet's surface with inferior uh, intelligence. Then uh, there was a reason for that, but they're, they're treated like, like it's, it's, it's treated like racism. I mean, they talk rel- frequently about evolutionarily they're different, that they're inferior in all these ways, and they're not capable of all this stuff. That's not about class. That is about race. And it also goes to something that I know I said when we did Let There Be the Last Battlefield is that race is a social construct. It's not a real thing. It is real in the sense that it has power and that people believe in it and that you can be proud of your race and there's racism and all those things are real. But in terms of actual real deep genetic differences between people, it is literally only skin deep. Humans are humans. We're the same. It is the, you know, race is something that we invented to split us apart. And that is definitely what's going on on Ardana, you know, because mm-hmm. that's what McCoy says. It's like, no, no, these they're the same. There's there's no differences here in terms of, you know, genetics. Mr. Spock, I thought you had accompanied Captain Kirk to the rest chamber. Your movements awakened me. Which, by the way, is a total lie. <laughs> he was not asleep. He was awake. And I just want to, you know, put the final nail in the coffin of Vulcans don't lie. They lie all the time. That's not true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My apologies. I did not realize they would disturb you. Only Vulcan ears would find the noise discernible. And man, the the Droxine Spock flirting is really kind of fun. Yeah, it is. I like the scene. And, you know, so many people have pointed out, uh, myself included, you know, earlier in my life, that for a character who was struggling to discuss the Ponfar with Kirk and Amaktan, mm. something that was so very, very, very private, something that that Tapal later said in the episode is something that is not discussed without worlders. You know, Spock was really struggling and embarrassed uh, in some ways to talk about the Ponfar with Kirk, someone he he trusts more than anyone else, except maybe Doctor McCoy. And so he just meets this woman and he's that not only is the flirting going on, but he's like telling her all about the pot far. I can only take a mate once every seven years. And like, he really like sort of dropped that guard. Like, I don't, maybe he just felt like, Oh, the, you know, the cat's out of the bag. I already discussed it. And especially maybe because of 
what happens between Kirk and Spock on Vulcan in that episode, that it became kind of more out there that this is just what Vulcans have to go through. Maybe he just felt like, oh, you know, maybe it's not as private as it should be. You know, you know what just occurred to me, uh, and it's again, this is only from doing this show, is you know what else might have changed the way he's handling this, What's the way happened? he's handling the whole thing from the beginning? The Enterprise incident. Because in that episode, we both agreed he was totally into the Romulan commander. Not that he was tempted to betray the Enterprise, but he was attracted to her, even though this isn't part of the Ponfar. And so I think maybe there's something in Spock's brain that's going, hey, maybe maybe I can you know, get some hookups going on. Maybe I can have a little relationship with a woman that's outside of the Vulcan traditions. Well, when you look at the production order of Star Trek, when you look at just how guarded Spock was – in an episode like and, – and raw that he was in the Galileo 7 and how so very guarded he was in a mock time when discussing the Ponfar, you know, yeah. Spock the, – the evolution of Spock throughout the original series, you know, it's not just an evolution. It's a growth. And yeah. as he grew, he started to like become less less stringent, less uptight about, about the privacy of the Ponfar. Like he had already discussed it with Kirk and then he has the big fight with Kirk on Vulcan. So it's out there. It's probably been reported. But I just think that over time, Spock has become less and less guarded about it. And that's why from the Enterprise incident to now the Cloudminders, he feels like, well, you know, this is this is the way we roll on Vulcan. You know, it's not it's not that private anymore. Well, and it's not just that, because then she says, and is there nothing that can disturb that cycle? Mr. Spock. Extreme feminine beauty is always disturbing. <laughs> it's not just that he's admitting about the pond far. He's also saying, I, I'm kind of into you right now because you're hot. I mean, that's what he just said. Well, and the thing too, let's just, I, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because let's examine it a little further because in The Naked Time, he says, when I feel friendship for you, I feel ashamed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in a terrible episode, but I think in the only moment that you and I kind of like in the episode, in Whom Gods Destroy, Kirk describes him as Spock as brothers, and Spock says, yeah, logically, Kirk is correct. Correct. Well, yeah. That, that, yeah, that is not the person that said, when I feel friendship for you, I feel ashamed. The evolution, that, right. That That is a person saying, no, this is, and, and also going back to Naked Time, the horrible guilt he feels not being able to return chapel's love and then going to this side of paradise with you know it was the only time i was happy and why he can't love her and i forget the character's name i'm sure you were Layla Kalomi. <laughs> Layla Kalomi, you know and then we get to the enterprise incident where he is clearly attracted to her and then we get to this like all of these are evolutions of spock and his character you, you know look when you're out in space in deep space on a starship for a five-year mission and and mm -hmm. Based on the star date of this episode, we are deep into five the, the fifth year of the five-year mission, the first number of the star date indicating the year that they're actually out in space. So, of course, all that time on a starship, all that time uh, among humans, as much as dedicated as Spock is to being Vulcan, he is A, still half-human, and B, just – you, you learn, you grow based on your environment and your circumstances. So exactly what you're talking about yeah. from, from naked time to whom gods destroy, when I feel friendship for you, I'm ashamed. 
yes, Kirk is my brother, uh, to a mock time where, oh, we are not allowed to talk about Ponfar with outsiders, to you know, uh, having this love for the Romulan commander and Enterprise incident and discussing Ponfar with someone he is attracted to. And you know what? It's okay. This is an element of Star Trek I never really thought of until we did this show. Exactly. But like, even though it's so funny because one element of Star Trek is logic versus emotion and how we have to control our emotions. And that's what Kirk is having to do over and over and over again. Get a hold of himself and make the right choice despite all the feelings that he's feeling. And Spock has to go on the opposite journey, which is to go, you know what? It's okay to have emotions. It's right. okay. Right. Like, I feel this. It's real. And the fact, and, and this is, again, it, it goes to why, you know, the, it was such a revelation for me thinking about that Star Trek is both conservative and liberal in its outlook. It's like, oh, Sp- Star Trek is both pro-logic and pro-emotion. It's pro-controlling your emotion and pro-saying it's okay to have emotions. Very good point. Very yeah. good point. Yeah, yeah. And so why he, while he's having this conversation with uh, Droxine, we see Vana sneaking past them into Kirk's room where he is asleep she's pulls out a knife the music is building she gets closer and we fade out and that is the end of act one uh we come back in act two kirk disarms her in like a really weak disarm it's totally not believable to me you sleep lightly captain yes duty is a good teacher i was watching the scene again where kirk tries to you know make her drop the knife and you're right it is not convincing whom gods destroy exactly what i was thinking yeah. because in whom gods destroy when marta kind of pulls the same trick by pulling a knife on kirk and he has to knock the knife out of her hand you know shatner hurt the palm of his hand he cut the palm of his hand during that right. scene so now he's got another woman approaching him with with a basically a knife and he's like i am not going to make that mistake mistake again and it does not look as convincing as it would have been probably in an earlier episode and so he tries to make a deal with her like look i'll 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 we'll let go of each other if you you know answer some questions she agrees immediately goes for his phaser he disarms her with that she came, we find out she came to take him hostage and that is when Spock and Droxine enter, and that is when they re- recognize each other. Why have you come here? To welcome our honored guests, as I was taught to do when I served in your father's household. So that's when we get the information of how of how she had been up on Stratos before. Has she injured you, Captain? Oh, no, not at all. In fact, her visit was quite enlightening. Oh? Yes, it seems the troglites are under the impression that the Enterprise is here to intimidate them. So do you think that's true, by the way, that Vana thinks that the Enterprise, the only reason it came was to intimidate them, that this whole thing about the plague is BS? Yeah, I do. I think that she does believe that the Enterprise is there. And by the way, uh, I I think that there's a little bit, especially on the part of Kirk, there's a little bit of flirtatious banner between Kirk and Vana. And, you know, here you have an episode where where you have Spock and Droxine and and the chemistry between them actually – works really really well and then you have this uh less flirtatious banner but still something there at least on the part of kirk between kirk and vana and the two of them i think kirk and vana you know shatner and Charlie polite are actually really good together you have you have yeah. like a, 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 an equal dynamic for for kirk and spock in this episode each dealing with with female you know protagonists lies will not keep the trog lights in the caverns and neither will your starship you talk like a disruptor, Van. I speak for my people. 
They have as much right to the clouds as the stratus dwellers. And Droxine's reaction to this is just, it's sad to me because she just can't see it. She says, The stratos is for advisors and studiers. What would troglites do here? Live in the sunlight and warmth as everyone should. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the other thing, Steve, is in addition to this episode being about class structure, in addition to it being about race, when was this episode produced? In the late 1960s, right? So you're talking about 1968, which was a very volatile year of revolt and revolution. And, you know, an early version of the story outline written by Margaret Armin in the beginning of August was called Revolt. So you have this revolt going on in this episode, yeah. which was very, very there's a lot more going on in the Cloudminders than I think a lot of a lot of people give the, the episode credit for. I think this is a, actually a very complex episode with a lot of depth, a lot of subtleties that speaks to the times in many different ways and for better or worse speaks to today in many different ways. A hundred percent, a hundred percent agree. The troglites are workers, Captain. Oh, surely you must be aware of that. They mine xenite for shipment, till the soil. Those things cannot be done here. In other words, they perform all the physical toil necessary to maintain stratus. That is their function in our society. And this is racism. She just has an image in her head of this is what these people are. Yep. It's just so sad to me. I Droxine just makes me really, really sad. It's slavery. You know, the, yeah. It's slavery. It's what it is. The, the big thing about this to me is that you can be exceptionally well-educated, exceptionally thoughtful, really value intelligence and value ethics in all these ways and still have major, major blind sides, you know, blind spots. Mm-hmm. You're right. And for me, and again, some people might get mad at me for this. The biggest examples is Thomas Jefferson writing the Declaration of Independence and saying all men are created equal while being a slave owner right. and not not seeing that contradiction in his life or George Washington or all those other guys, um, all those other guys, the family. all those guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this is the thing that I, that it's important to say. I think these are great people who did great things, who are brilliant, brilliant people who founded our country, mm-hmm. who had major, major blind spots. Absolutely. Yeah. No question about it. The surface is marred by violence, like the drug lights. Here in Stratos, we have completely eliminated violence. Cut to Vana is strapped to what I assume they were going to strap that other guy to. <laughs> and what we see is these two women. And one of them is we see Vana being hit with these lights. She's in pain. Yeah. It's like it's like she can't. She, it's probably, you know, she can't move, but she's feeling an immense amount of pain. But the other thing is that watching Vana be tortured is Droxine. Do you think this is the first time she's seen someone tortured? Nope. I don't either. No, she's not shocked at all. No. I, I think this is something that she's just been conditioned to seeing. But she does have a reaction when she looks away. You see you're, the camera is on Droxine. And you see her look off to the side when Vana starts getting tortured. My thought at that moment is, I hope Kirk and Spock don't hear this. Hmm. And of course, Kirk and Spock do hear this. Right, right. And they come running out. And as soon as they come out, they stop the torture. And you see Vana just sort of sag in her bonds. Mm. You 
said you were going to question Farmer, not torture her. Physical discomfort is extremely persuasive, Captain. So this is also an episode about torture. And this is this thing that comes up. We've heard it come up since the Iraq War. We've heard it come up a lot of times of, well, if someone had the location of a nuclear bomb that was going to destroy New York, would you torture them to get the information? And it is a complicated question, and I'm not saying we're going to engage in it here, but I am saying I think Captain Kirk's answer is no. Well, Captain Kirk's answer is clearly no under this circumstance. Because there are millions of people whose lives are are going to die in the next 10 hours, you know, that's or 12 hours or whatever it is right now. That's what's at stake. And he says, but I won't stand by while someone is tortured. Kirk is also hearing for the first time this conflict that's going on between Stratus and the Troglites. He's catching on that the plight of the Troglites is not torture, is not uh, as terrorist. You know, he sees them as as struggling. You know, uh, because yeah. they they've been they've been forced to live in you know really bad circumstances. I don't think he sees them as terrorists. I love that Spock turns to Droxine and says. Violence, in reality, is quite different from theory, is it not, madam? But what else can they understand, Mr. Spock? And I love his response. All the little things you and I understand and expect from life, such as equality, kindness, justice. Troglites are not like Stratus dwellers, Mr. Spock. The idea that we could think of humans and that they couldn't appreciate all the things that we could appreciate, you know, that's the heart of racism. Yep, mm mm-hmm. They're a conglomerate of inferior species. The abstract concepts of an intellectual society are beyond their comprehension. And I love Kirk's response to this. I think this is a sophisticated idea. The abstract concepts of loyalty and leadership seem perfectly clear to Vana. So he's saying that she appreciates, you know, ideas in the way that you're saying troglites can't. Exactly. Yep. And then his response, and again, this just shows the massive amount of cognitive dissonance going on with the Stratus Dwellers. A few troglites are brought here as retainers. Vanna was one of them, as are the Sentinels. They've received more training than the others. And I'm like, well, that should clue you in that they're capable of more than you think they are. Sure. And they're also, they also have been taken out of the mines where the Xenite yeah. is, uh, is affecting them. And given more responsibility and more education and being around those galleries of beautiful art and all the other stuff. Like, even right. if there wasn't Xenite gas if you take someone out of one environment and put them into a more privileged environment with more education you'll get a different result but these intellectual stratus dwellers they can't see that and now blasis is getting pissed i fail to see the purpose of this continued criticism and kirk man it's, it's like you know how we were talking about it's like they had lost sight of the characters you know in the last few episodes they're back they're back i when kirk says the only way you'll use that device again is on one of us. I love the stand that Kirk takes because you're right. Because there are there were certain certainly in the Mark of Gideon, my goodness, uh, Kirk was way out of character. But in Cloudminders, he is very much back into character. This yep. is the Kirk who took a stand uh, uh, in a very very big way in like uh, a Taste of Armageddon. Uh, this is the Kirk who took, who takes a stand. This is the, the, the Kirk that, you know, we've been championing so many times. And things continue to ex- escalate. My orders are to get that Xenite. Then stop interfering and I'll get it for you. You won't get it through torture. We will get it for you and in our own way. I love this back and forth between Plasis and yeah. Kirk. Those two guys are such great actors. Plasis orders Kirk 
to go back to a ship. Or I shall contact your Starfleet command myself and report your interference with this planet's government. And Kirk, frankly, knows he's been beat. And he calls up to the Enterprise, they beam up, and then Plasis says, Captain Kirk appears again. Kill him. All bets are off. The cat is out of the bag. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Dispense with the pleasantries. Kirk does not like Plasis, and the feeling is mutual. <laughs> well, and what I think is too, what, what else, the other thing I think that's cool about this episode, it's really different. We haven't had this particular conflict. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, Plasis is not a I'm not saying what Plasis is doing isn't evil. I think it is evil, but he's not a bad guy in the sense that he's motivated by evil intentions. He's motivated by maintaining his society, which he believes is a good society in the way that he sees that he should do it. Right. And Captain Kirk is running up against him and he is the leader of this planet. And Captain Kirk is not supposed to be interfering with the way they do things internally. It's act three. We're back on the Enterprise. A lot of time has gone by. The plague is spreading. Only 12 hours left to go on Merrick 2. If the Xenon is not delivered shortly, I shall have to violate Plasis' order of non-interference and win the confidence of the troglate leader with the use of reason. It may not be easy, Jim. Medical analysis indicates the troglites are mentally inferior. And then they get into an argument about evolution and that, look, they evolve from the same place. It doesn't make sense that they would be inferior. Look, I've checked my findings thoroughly. Their intellect ratings are almost 20% below average. I just want to discuss this because this is just for a moment, because it's something I've been thinking about a lot just in general. This idea, okay, the troglites are 20% below average intellectually. And I think this come, actually comes up a lot in our world because you'll often hear something like um, girls score 10 or 15% less well on standardized mathematics tests than boys. And the impression you get from that is like, oh, girls are less good at math. And first of all, there are all sorts of cultural reasons that that's the case and that this isn't probably like a genetic thing, but the X chromosome or something. But the thing that we don't picture is that this is an average. So if you picture a bell curve and it's like, okay, let's say the bell curve for girls or for troglites is 20% lower. That doesn't mean that way off on one side, there are a whole bunch of girls that are awesome at math that are way better than you and I are to math and that really are kicking ass there. And it doesn't mean that there are a whole bunch of troglites that aren't way smarter than people on Stratos. In fact, Vana could be way smarter than Droxine. And it also doesn't mean that there aren't a bunch of morons living on Stratos that are idiots that are not as smart as the troglites. It's just an average. And so that's taking that average and then taking that whole group and saying, therefore, they are lesser than misses the whole damn point. They are individuals with different abilities. Really good point. Absolutely. So before it was Xenite gas, the mm. uh, culprit was called Hydromoss that was infecting the miners. But Kellum DeForest Research, which advised on the accuracy of the, the science that went into Star Trek, said that a naturally radioactive plant was not viable. But the Xenite gas mm. did create parallels to today because it is kind of a stand-in to the dangers of underground mining that goes with asbestos and Agent Orange and things like that. So, so Kelvin DeForest suggested the change from making it a plant to a gas, but that actually made it more viable. I think it's I think it's a great choice. And I think it's really interesting that there is a a thing in the environment that is changing development. And I was curious if you knew anything about hookworm or had read anything about the effects of hookworm. No, never heard of it. Okay. So in uh, 
hookworm is a parasite that's one of those yucky things that if you're playing around in the dirt and you gets in your mouth it'll end up in your intestines and do all sorts of terrible stuff to you yeah hookworm is a parasite that leads to lethargy and definitely in children impedes development so that intellectual development is really turned down if a young kid or a baby is infected with hookworm there is evidence to suggest that 40% of the slave population of the United States before the Civil War was infected by hookworm. And so there's this ideas that you would hear if someone, some, let's say, racist asshole was going to say, oh, they're lazy or, oh, they're not as smart as us or all the things that we're hearing the stratus dwellers talk about. Those are things that were being said about the slave population when, in fact, 40% of them might have been infected with this thing that impedes development. And another one today that impedes development is lead in your water. Mm. And if you want to think about where are you more likely to find lead pipes and kids drinking water that has high qualities of lead in it that leads to impeded development and intellectual issues and emotional development issues, well, you will find them in all the poor communities. You're not going to find them in Beverly Hills. You're going to find them where poor people live and in particular people of color. I got to say, that is just crazy how relevant this episode actually still is. Yeah. And then what I love is that Kirk then asked this question. The disruptors, Vana, it seems impossible. They've outwitted a highly organized scientific culture for months. And that's when we hear the discussion about Vana being removed from that environment. Right. Thing is, there's a lot of nature versus nurture in life. And the environments we grow up in affect how we live in our lives, you know? If you have two parents that go to college, you're way more likely to go to college. That has nothing to do with the ability you were born with. It has to do with the environment you grew up in. Can you neutralize the gas? No, but a filter mask should remove the exposure. And this, I had the same reaction you did that you mentioned at the beginning. I was like, it didn't even occur to me that this is all about arguing about whether or not we're going to wear masks. <laughs> um, oh, my God. I, I was watching this again because I hadn't really watched it since, you know, before the pandemic. And I'm going like... The argument over wearing masks has also made this episode pretty timely, you know? Yeah. No, not as many people are wearing masks now at this point in October of 2022 than they were in October of 2021, uh, certainly in October of 2020. um, That does make the episode extremely, extremely timely. And do you really expect me to believe that that mask can achieve intellectual equality for the troglites? And they're like, yeah. We've yeah. checked it out pretty well. Dr. McCoy has analyzed the Xenite thoroughly. We've checked his findings through the computer, and they're absolutely valid. And do your computers explain how my ancestors, who also dwelt in caverns, evolved sufficiently to erect stratos? It, it's so, you know, we use whatever information we have to hold on to our worldview, and that's what Placis is trying to do right now. Um, he basically says... This is nonsense. Mm. And I, li- I like, and he's right about this. He says, I doubt whether even Vado will believe such nonsense. And basically says, no, I'm not going to let you offer these masks to the troglites. Your Federation orders do not entitle you to defy local governments. This communication has ended. And cuts him off. And Kirk responds with that saying, my diplomacy is somewhat inadequate. It's a shame because... Back in Metamorphosis, it was McCoy who told Kirk, you're so you're used to being a soldier so much, you yeah. forget that you're also a diplomat. Try waving a carrot instead of a stick. And he is waving a carrot in the form of a mask that will help the troglites. Yep. 
Well, and McCoy says now, he says, it's pretty hard to overcome prejudice. And which reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, which I'm pretty sure is Jonathan Swift, which is, uh, you cannot reason someone out of a position they did not reason themselves into. Ooh, that's a great quote. Isn't it? Yeah. So it applies a lot of places, particularly these days. And so Kirk's solution is beam me down Ivana's cell, which is obviously in violation of everything they said that now it's going to, if he gets caught, they could execute him. And then I like, you're about to suggest that you contact Vanna. The answer is negative, Spock. That goes for you too, Bones. Allow me to point out that a first officer is more expendable than either a doctor or a captain. I found it interesting that he puts himself below Dr. McCoy in terms of expendability. Mm, yeah, yeah. But they beam him down. He shows up in Vanna's cell and he tries to convince her that this mask is going to save him. And guess what? Plasis was totally right. Yeah, Vanna doesn't believe him either. It's hard to believe that something which is neither seen nor felt can do so much harm. And Kirk, Kirk says to Vana three times, you must trust me. He says it three times to her. Yep. And for a while, you think that Vana is going to trust Kirk. Yeah. Uh, but she's she doesn't. Well, and I love the moment where he's trying to convince her. And she says, Centuries ago. Stratus was built by leaders that gave their word, that all inhabitants would live there, that troglites are still waiting. That to me, man, there are so many times in American history where we have promised somebody something, whether mm -hmm. it's Native Americans or 40 acres and a mule, or there's so many of them where the, the, where the troglites are still waiting. The troglites are still waiting, right. And then he says, you know, look, I get the sea night. I'll deliver it. I'll come right back. You don't have long to wait now. And she says, Hours can be centuries, just as words can be lies. It's a great line. And again, as you said, he says, trust me. And finally, she agrees to trust him. And then she says, look, the, the Zenite's way down in the mines. You won't be able to find it. I'm going to have to take you there. And now Kirk doesn't want to trust her. Right. Right. And she she says, says, for my trust, you know, are you going to yeah. trust me? It's great. And this is why I agree with you. I think Vaughn is a really good character. Yep. And Kirk kind of nods, and then they hear footsteps, and the guard is coming, and Kirk hides. Guard comes in, sees the mask on the table, and Kirk stuns him. And then she says, wait, we'll need a transport pass to leave the city. And I'm like, why didn't you just call Spock and have him beam you down? But they don't <laughs> beam do that. down, yeah, yeah. And now we're in the caverns, and he's following her, and she bangs on a rock, and out comes some more of the disruptors. And Kirk is there. He's got his mask on. You have returned. And I've brought with me a hostage. Seize him. So I get that whole trust me thing. That, that yeah, was, trust is uh, hard to come by on, uh, yeah. on Art Donna. <laughs> our weapons are our freedom. And you've just furnished me with two very valuable ones. Yourself and this. Pointing to our phaser. And I, I don't know why this, the way she says this line and the music and the build here has always, it's kind of echoed in my brain, but she says, In the meantime, taste of our existence, Captain. Dig as the troglites do. As the troglites do. Mask I haven't. And they take his mask off, and they force him down, and he starts digging with his bare hands. With his bare hands. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good, this is a good episode. I really like it. Yeah. That's the end of Act 3. Act 4, we're back with Spock, who... Hasn't heard anything from the captain, and he feels like if he calls him, that could put his life in jeopardy, and so they're waiting. And Vana gives some orders to the two guys that are with her. One is she says to, you know, 
put basically let Plasis know that they have him so they can bargain. You are clever, Vanna. Very clever. So it's worth noting that one of the troglites here, uh, the troglite named Anka, is played by Fred Williamson. Fred Williamson had already been famous this point by this point because he spent eight years on the NFL as one of the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's Fred Williamson? That's Fred Williamson, my friend. No, I had to look at him again. And Fred Williamson was also in the uh, movie version of MASH. Is he is he Spear, Spear Chucker Jones? Yes, he is. He Spear is. Chucker Jones. <laughs> Which is, a, I look, I'm sorry. It's a totally racist name, but that is the name of the character in the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the other disruptor that's there, he starts arguing with her. And man, you can just see his lack of intellectual development compared yeah. to Vanna. I will see that he doesn't escape. If we kill him, there will be no need to see. A dead hostage is of no value, Maidro. Like they spoke broken English, you know, they're, yeah. they're, 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 they're like mentality of a child. How long do you plan on keeping me here? Providing Maidro doesn't kill me, of course. Can you see that Kirk is about to to do his little lull her in a false security and attack her? Yeah, absolutely. And that for sure. And that, of course, is what's happening. And she attacks her and they're wrestling. He gets the phaser. And what does he do when he gets the phaser? He causes a cave in. This is the Kirk that 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 we've come back to the, the yeah. Kirk with a plan, the Kirk who came up with the Corbomite maneuver. It's yeah, it's Corbomite's balance, balance of terror. It's it's that this is this is the Kirk that we like. You know, he's yep. going to make the bold move. Soon the atmosphere will go. We'll die. Die from something that can't be seen. You astound me, Vanna. Uh, which is a great callback. Calls up to Spock and set and orders him. And I love, by the way, that Spock says, "You know, we're ready to beam you up." Circumstances dictate a slight variation, Spock. And I love there's a moment where Leonard Nimoy has kind of a reaction and then says, standing by for instructions. To me, this moment is Spock going, oh, he's got it. He's got a plan. Yeah, you know? yeah he's got a plan. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, and his orders are to immediately beam Plasis from wherever he is to where I am. And I think what happens next is weird, which is that all these conversations with Scotty about, wait, should I really beam him? Do you mean immediately? And I, I is this just padding? I you know? feel like this is padding because, you know, they should yeah. be like, like on it. Let's go. Let's do it. Yeah. But instead we have a bunch of talking, but in the midst of that talking, we also have a really interesting scene with Droxine and Plasis. I was just standing here looking into space wondering whether or not he would return. He will never return. I've seen to that. Of course, Plasis thinks he's talking about Kirk, but we kind of know she's talking about Spock. Of course. There, I wasn't thinking of Captain Kirk. It's the one with those exquisitely shaped ears. <laughs> His name is Spock. <laughs> you know what I was thinking about? What? Uh, where I think this part of this came from? How much of a sex symbol did Mr. Spock become in these last three years? Oh, absolutely he did. He was absolutely not a, you know, he was the most popular character. I mean, he was yeah. nominated for an Emmy three, all three seasons of the original series. He was absolutely a sex symbol. Well, and I think Droxine was written specifically for all the young women who were digging Spock and were tight. You know, it's like, stop with all this sh Shatner stuff. Spock <laughs> is the sexy one. Yeah, yeah. And obviously Droxine is hip to that. Did you know that he has the most incredibly sensitive hearing? Why... I almost believe that if I stood here and called out to him, he would hear my invitation to come and visit with us for a little while longer. Oh, he's no better than his friend. <laughs> Shall we try? 
<laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And then I will say the person who might very well be the worst actor in the history of the original series comes up. It's just the guard to tell them that Vana has escaped. And oh, Captain yeah. Kirk. Awful. Awful. The disruptor Vana has disappeared. Her guard was found half unconscious. He's been attacked by Captain Kirk. Monotone delivery. Terrible. Yeah, he's terrible. And I, and like, and maybe someone will say, well, because he's one of the, you know, he's a troglite, and so he's not very smart. And it's like, no, he's just a bad actor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, dude. Father, are we so sure of our methods that we never question what we do? So she's starting to get it. Well, and I think this is, in a weird way, this is also the 60s, which is how many young, privileged kids went off to university you know, and had those experiences that made them see the world in a new way and changed their perspective, you know? Bingo. Bingo. Exactly. Super fast digression. My mom's first cousin was exactly the right age in the 60s in San Francisco. And I swear I've seen pictures of her that is like 1966, and she's literally a debutante in an outfit to go to the ball. And 1967, she is fully a hippie. And this woman, she's still around. She's my cousin, Christy. She has, she lived on a commune. She, you know, did all the acid and all the stuff. And to this day, she goes to Burning Man every year in her 70s. Wow, wow. (laughs) So we do beam him down. And I guess we had to beam him briefly to the transporter room. And Scotty said he looked angry. And now we're in the caverns. And he is pissed. Abduction of a planet official is a serious crime. You will pay for this, I promise you. And man, the shot of Kirk clutching that phaser. Oh, so cool. I love it. I love, I use that as my thumbnail for Enterprise Incidents mm-hmm. when I tease that this was our next episode. Cause I just love he, you know, Kirk is just clutching that phaser, you know, kind of almost like rubbing his face with the, with the butt of the phaser. And he is clearly being affected by the Xenite gas. He is proving his own point, and he was the first to be affected, and he doesn't even realize it. What effects? I've been here nearly an hour of your Earth time. You and Vanna even longer. I see no changes in any of us. And I love the way Shatner moves forward. Like, when he has his physicality and his even being a little big sometimes, when he knows what he's doing and he has something cool to do, it totally works. Oh, he is you know. Shatner at this moment. I love yeah. this moment. Perhaps you need closer exposure. Fill that container. And the haughtiness of, of him saying, Are you suggesting that I dig Xenite? And he says, I insist. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he starts digging. And then, and this is what shows that Kirk is clearly round the bend. You too, Vala. And he throws her there. You too, dig! And then Spock calls and he yells at Spock. Yeah. Um, yeah. He says, I don't want to be disturbed, but he shuts his communicator when Spock is in the middle of a yep. sentence. No, so he's clearly, clearly getting affected strongly. I am high advisor of all the planet. I will take no more orders. One more step and I'll kill you. Wow. Do you think he would kill him? Under the state he's in? Quite possibly. I think so too. Are you as brave with Morte as you are with a phaser? Both will kill. And he just tosses his phaser. And then I love that Placis, who you would assume was going to offer him one of the weapons just attacks him and they start fighting. And it's at this moment as they're fighting with each other, that Vana is starting to go, what's happening here? Right. Right. She, she, and picks she up on it. she's like, you were right. You're right. Captain. It's yeah. the, the effect of the gas. You're right. Yeah. 
And she picks up the communicator and calls up to the Enterprise. Enterprise, Spock here. They'll kill each other. Help us. Help us. And they get beamed up to the Enterprise. And there they're still fighting. Vana gets knocked down. Spock runs up, tries to pull Kirk off of Plasis and says, the Xenite gas has affected you. And Kirk is about to punch Spock in the face. Yeah, I love you. You see Kirk like winding up with a like he's about to like like you let his let a big punch go, and Spock yells at him. The Z-Hype gas. And and I love too that at that moment Plasis attacks him and Kirk just takes him out. Right. Um, <laughs> Kirk just kind of gathers himself back together. Well, it seems my little demonstration was quite a success. Yeah, and he like, he like straightens out his shirt, but it's like all filthy from the mining and the you know the Xenite. And we cut to back on Stratus. It's later on. Spock and Droxine are ca- talking about the filter and whether what we should call it. And then there is Vana looking proud and herself and says, "The captain will have his Xenite, just as I agreed." No thanks to any agreement by you. It had to be obtained by force because it is the only way we can obtain what is due us. How about your education? Was that by force? It served your purpose at the time. And they continue to argue. And then we go back to Droxine and Spock. Stratus is so pleasant. So beautiful. I think I'm afraid to leave it. There is great beauty in the knowledge that lies below. Only one way to really experience it. And Droxine has a full character arc, I think, because she says, I shall go to the mines. I no longer wish to be limited to the clouds. It's a great addition to the the many elements of this episode is that Droxine has an arc. Um, And while this is happening, Kirk is offering some Federation uh, moderation to help with their issues with the between the Stratus dwellers and the Troglites. I will tolerate absolutely no interference. You will not set foot here as long as I rule. Hey, Kirk, man, I like righteous indignation, Kirk. Believe me, sir, I have neither the time nor the desire to return here. Only answering your charges against me will force me back. And then Vana steps in the middle of Captain Kirk and High Advisor Plasis. Captain, perhaps both incidents are best forgotten. And Kirk just composes himself and is like, you know what? She's right. And he just kind of laughs the whole thing off says to the advisor they never happened mr advisor the advisor is not as forgiving but agrees but what i love about this particular moment is that you know this would have been a kirk moment for kirk to say it's best forgotten but it's vana who steps in also in some ways achieving an arc of her own maybe not as fully realized as as droxine's but that she steps in and she becomes the diplomat and says, guys, just forget about the whole thing. Yeah. yeah it's great. It's a great moment. And, you know, another reason why I, I'm more of a Vana guy. <laughs> well, and, and it proves the thing that we've been talking about the whole time, which is that she's, there is no difference between the troglites and the stratus dwellers. Right. That's you right. Know? She's the one who solves this problem. And they agree, and they beam up, and as Droxine looks up into the stratosphere, that is the end of the Cloudminders. I I like how the episode ends uh, with Droxine looking on into the area after Kirk and Spock have beamed up with the Z-Knight, that she still – she really does have a thing for him. And and 
uh, the, the show Star Trek Enterprise ended after four seasons. But if it had gone on to a fifth season, executive producer Manny Cotto had said that they would have done a prequel episode to the Cloudminders that would hmm. have taken place on the city of Stratus. That would have been pretty cool. Interesting. And with the end of the Cloud Miners, we want to welcome back to Enterprise Incidents, David Gerald. He joined us for The Trouble with Tribbles. He was such a great guest. We're so excited to have him back on. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, David Gerald is one of the story writers of the Cloud Miners, along with Oliver Crawford. So welcome back aboard Enterprise Incidents, David Gerald. Thank you. Well, you guys are very special to me too. So it was a, like you said, oh. hey, we want to talk about the Cloudminders. And not my favorite episode, but it, there's some interesting behind the scenes things that we can talk about. So I'd be happy to. You know, my first question to you, David, is uh, when it came time for you to to do another story for Star Trek, what was the first story that you had in mind? Well, we had been talking about doing a sequel to The Tribbles, which oh. we eventually did for the animated series. Um, and Gene had said he'd wanted a sequel to The Tribbles, which was quite a turnaround because originally he had been very upset. He had been on vacation. He came back and, and found they were shooting The Trouble with Tribbles. And he was like, what the hell is this? Star Trek isn't a comedy, and which is one of the reasons he had a big falling out with Gene L. Coon. But the Tribbles were so iconic and had such an impact and got a Hugo nomination and uh, that he realized there's something here. But then NBC had promised him um, the eight o'clock Monday time slot. And uh, he was very excited because it was a it was a big would be just the right time slot for the show. But during the summer, they had this show called uh, Rowan and Martin's Laugh It, which was a brilliant Huge. show. Nobody remembers yeah. it now, but it was absolutely uh, just one hour of laugh your butt off. So NBC came to Gene and said, well, we found the perfect time slot for you, 10 o'clock Fridays. And Gene hit the ceiling, justifiably so. First of all, you guys promised me the 8 o'clock slot. And the 10 o'clock Friday slot is a death sentence because nobody stays home on Friday night. They go out to the movies. They go out for dinner. Um, the funny thing is, is Star Trek ratings did not fall. They stayed very high for that uh, 10 o'clock death slot on Friday nights. Um, and the other thing about uh, Star Trek, which NBC, also NBC's big mistake, and I, I really want to lay in this background before I get to the question you asked, is uh, they invested in demographics the first time anybody had done demographics for a television show. And the demographics company came back and said, we found the perfect show for reaching the 15 to 35 male market. I said, great, what is it? I said, Star Trek. Oh God, we just canceled it. <laughs> so for the next three or four years, NBC was on the phone to Paramount. You know, can we bring back Star Trek? We want to bring back Star Trek. And Paramount equally stupid, said, no, we don't want to because we don't want to compete with our syndication of the uh, first 79 episodes, which was stupid on Paramount's part. Mm. Like, yeah, you have the syndication, but a new show would be, it pulled the ratings. Uh, Every, you know, the college dorms would shut down. (laughs) Everybody would gather around the dorm TV set or at NASA, they would gather, the the astronauts would sit down and watch Star Trek. But by the time we realized Star Trek was this strange new phenomenon in television. It was too late. It had been canceled. And finally, NBC and Paramount came to terms 
for a 1977 return, but uh, which eventually turned into Star Trek, the motion picture. But now with the cloud minders, Gene was so upset about what NBC moving the show to that time slot that he left the show. He said, I'm not going to do it. You guys promised me if I would come back, you would give me this time slot. You broke your promise. I'm going to, I don't have to keep mine. And he brought in Fred Freiberger. Now, Gene said what other producers have said. Well, he came highly recommended. He could bring a show in on time and under budget. And this is important. The problem was Fred Freiberger, not a bad man, but not a good producer. And and I give him credit. I really do give him credit. But he, he did not recognize that there was a Star Trek family in place. And he was his, uh, let's say his public relations weren't good. Walter Koenig wrote this wonderful memo about Chekhov and what he Chekhov could do and should do in the third season. Freiberger passed him in the hall and said, read your memo, forget it. That was it, right? Yeah. Um, wow. and, and I went to my first meeting with Fred Freiberger, and here I am. I still looked like I was 14 years old, but, you know, I had a Hugo nomination, right? For my first sale. And I had already proven myself that I could do a rewrite on iMud, which was uncredited. And because of that, I don't think Freiberger was aware of it. And I was like, I had this reputation of being, you know, promising young talent, I guess. And uh, uh, if Gene Kuhn had stayed on the show, Dorothy was going to leave as story editor. And I knew Gene Kuhn was thinking that I might be a good candidate to be his story editor if he had stayed. So I, I I had my meeting scheduled with Fred Freiberger, and literally, I am not making this up, his first words to me were, I screened The Trouble with Tribbles this morning. Didn't like it. Star Trek is not a comedy. Wow. Said, oh, okay. So any talk of doing a sequel to The Tribbles, which Gene, I'd had a meeting with Gene before we got that god-awful time slot, and Gene was all on board for a sequel to The Tribbles. Freiberger killed it. So I pitched one called Castles in the Sky, and they were interested. He was interested in it, and uh, this was in June, and Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And, and yeah. like, I had a meeting that two days after, we were, everybody in Hollywood was furious, ferocious. And Bob Justman and Fred Freiberger were sitting there, and, and uh, they said, let's really pull out all the stops and tell a really aggressive story here. That, that was their momentary commitment the the what i call the limousine liberal commitment is is saying all the right things until things cool down and uh i said well here's the story i want to tell and they said all right let's go for it but then freiberger said look you don't have a lot of experience i want you to take a collaborator on this i thought all right i could probably learn something i was a little hurt by that part of it was bob justman thought i was way too young to be writing television I think he still was afraid of that when we worked on Next Generation 20 years later. <laughs> Bob Justman and I did, I finally earned his respect. But he was from a different generation. And and I, I see it now myself. As you look at the younger generation, do I, are they seasoned enough? Do they know enough? And of course, I was coming from a whole different generation of film school uh, students and whatever, and a different attitude toward what television could be and should be. And, and I understand where Bob was coming from. And by the way, I loved Bob. I admired him. And, and I thought he was, I, I always wanted to be worthy of his respect. 
So I went to Erwin R. Blacker, who was the screenwriting uh, instructor at USA. As would you collaborate with me? And he turned me down. He said, "No, I, I, I don't want to do television." And, and and it wasn't that we weren't on good terms. It's just that he didn't want it. He just didn't want it. And I thought, all right. And uh, so Freiberger said, "I want you to take on Ollie Crawford." Now I had no idea who Ollie Crawford was, but I learned Ollie Crawford was one of the giants of the, the Writers Guild. He was one of the people who had, you know, when they back in '48 when the guild started, and the studios didn't want to deal with a union of writers, and they had studio goons out there beating up writers. Ollie was one of the grand old men who put his butt on the line to get the the guild started. And I mean, I just fell in love with him. He was just a remarkable. Uh, he was just a giant, an unsung giant. Um, and uh, so I went over to his house and we played pool <laughs> and we talked the story and we came up with, we thought was a very strong outline. Uh, so we turned it in, we got paid and, uh, uh, a couple weeks later, and we're waiting for them to say, okay, go to script or here's what we want to fix and go to a couple weeks later, they cut us off and gave the whole thing to Margaret Armand, who changed it to the cloud minders. Now, Margaret was a very nice lady. I hired her for Land of the Law. She did the third episode. But I, I I never felt she was ambitious enough in her script writing. And that's just a personal thing. It's it's just I wanted to go one direction. And, and she was very methodical. And, and uh, she turned in a good script. She was a little late on Land of the Lost, which gave me some. I was ready. Like, if she hadn't turned it in, I had to write that. I would have written that episode myself that night. But uh, that's tales out of school. Okay. But she turned into the cloud miners. Now, it wasn't a bad episode, but it wasn't a great episode. And I'll tell you, what I had wanted was we didn't solve the problem. We put mechanisms in place that the problem would get solved. And at the end of what I wrote is Kirk said, well, we, we, we've made a difference. We've, I, I wasn't sure how I was going to phrase it, but Kirk said, well, we've made another difference. We've done good. And McCoy would say, yes, but it'll take generations and how many children are going to die in the meantime. Because what I had written is that it, the castles in the sky was a, a metaphor for economic injustice. You know, it wasn't a comedy, believe me. It was, here's this upper class living in the floating sky cities and here's the workers down on the ground. And when we finally get this civilization to recognize this economic just, injustice has to be fixed. If you want to be a part of the Federation, it's like, and it was basically, it was a, 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 here in America, we have the economic injustice and we've got to fix it or we are going, we are going to create greater problems down the line. Obviously, I was totally wrong because all that economic injustice has clearly been good for the country, right? I got homeless in the street, two blocks from where I live, camped out under bridges as I, I yeah, right. If we don't do something about economic injustice in this country while we still have the ability to, we're going to have a revolution on our hands. Well, David, let me stop right there. I just, you know, you, you, when you talk about castles in the sky and how, and, and how you, you were going to have it end with on a more ambiguous note, one that really stays with you, like, let's say, you know, sitting on the edge of forever or something that something that really stays with you. What was this like the big the big plot difference between Castles in the Sky and the Cloud Miners. <laughs> I was, yes, I was just going to get to that. 
Margaret yeah. Arman or Fred Freiberger or Arthur Singer, their story editor, came up with, well, if we can just get the worker, it's all this xenite gas is driving everybody crazy. And if we just get them to wear these masks where they filter out the xenite gas, they can all go back to work and be happy. They can still be slaves. And I thought, this is such a betrayal of the original concept. Let's just find a way to make the slaves happy and they can go back and we'll live in our sky cities and they can go back to work in the Zenite mines. This is one of the reasons I became, you know, I was always somewhat of a, a liberal, right? Woke, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> but this is one of the things that drove me into being a crazy radical that people aren't listening to what we are saying. And I never forgave Fred Freiberger for two things. One is that he cut me off. He told me to take Ollie Crawford as a partner and then cut me off, which I thought was unethical. And the second thing, just bowdlerizing the story to the point where it was no longer uh, the kind of story that people, I mean, people will remember the cloud miners for the floating cities, but I wanted them to remember the cloud miners for that, that last line that McCoy would say, how many children are going to die first? I wanted the episode to hurt. I wanted us to do the kind of Star Trek that was possible, particularly in the late 60s when television was finally accepting some of the responsibility for being a major cultural voice. And I went to Next Generation with the idea that maybe we can finally do those kinds of episodes. And the big problem there was Gene's lawyer, Leonard Mazelish, who's, oh, no, we can't do anything that would upset people. And Rick Berman, who wanted to do, who didn't want to do anything that would get mommies writing letters, I say, well, if we're not going to do the Star Trek we were promised, there's no point in staying here. I, my role models as writers were Harlan Ellison and D.C. Fontana and Robert A. Heinlein, and all of whom were ambitious and that stories have to make a difference. They have to, something has to be at stake, not just for the characters in the story, but for the reader as well. Stories, it's, stories are the way we codify our cultural heritage. They are the way we say, who, this is who we are, and this is what we're up to, and this is what we believe in. And if I can't work on a show that's committed to that, then why am I, then all I'm there is, you know, I'm there for the paycheck. And unfortunately, I somewhere along the line, I developed enough integrity that I could not stay in that kind of situation. I it was amazed myself. I didn't believe I had that kind of integrity. And by the way, it was painful. <laughs> it was painful. I don't sure. want to leave Star Trek. Sure. No, I have, you know, I have to leave Star Trek. So, David, my question is, like, when you, when you finally saw the version of the Cloudminders that Margaret Armin had done, was it when the show aired or were you allowed to read her version of the teleplay and like suggest anything or were you, you know, like not a part of that? Yeah, I was version gone. I had been cut off. Once you, once, once you're cut off, you're cut off. You're not part of the process anymore. And uh, I did not know what she had written until I, uh, I'm pretty sure I did not see the script. Maybe I saw a script. I, I don't remember. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that it was the night the episode was aired was the time I finally hit the ceiling. Um, oh boy! Wow. And, and realized yeah. it's, it was it's, like it's not. And, fun. and I went to I went to the 1969 WorldCon, and people were asking me about Star Trek, and I said it's been turned into crap. So, oh wow! Well, you weren't wrong. I, I was <laughs> not. And, well, it's, Gene wasn't there. Gene Roddenberry, and see, I wanted. 
the Star Trek we saw season one, I think, was the strongest. And, and you know, it's like, but Tribbles was season two. Yeah, season one was the, overall was strongest. You had so many good episodes in the first season of Star Trek because there was this gravitas, this believability, this sense of solidity uh, that came from Gene Roddenberry's military experience. He would say, if I wouldn't believe it on the bridge of the battleship Missouri, I won't believe it on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. And when Gene was at his best, and I, you know, Gene and I did have our falling out later on, but I will give him credit when Gene was at his best, that's when you got the best episodes of Star Trek. And I think that was his falling out with Gene L. Kuhn. As you look at the second season, you have episodes like A Piece of the Action and, and so on, which were funny enough and fun enough, but they didn't have the same gravitas or ambition. And it wasn't a bad season. There were a lot of great episodes, but compared to that first season, which was remarkable, it wasn't the same. So I, I'm curious, what do you think makes uh, science fiction in general and Star Trek in specific such a good medium for talking about serious issues? Why, why, why do you think it helps? So science fiction is speculation on possibility. It's a literature of ideas. It's a literature of possibility. It is a literature of challenge. Science fiction asks, how does this universe work? What is possible in this universe? And ultimately, who are we as human beings? What does it mean to be a human being? And so science fiction is the is a unique genre. Every other genre is about the past, even if it's about the present or if it's about like horror is about the present. But the historical literature, romance literature, it's all, all about the past. Science fiction is a, the only literature that is about the future. And the fact that uh, science fiction is considered predictive, it is not. It is just that it examine, it imagines possibilities like, can we go to the moon? Can we build computers? What's under the ocean? What are human beings capable of? Um, what would happen if we had this? What would happen if we did that? Uh, so science fiction is the research and development division of the human species. Uh, science fiction is the dreams that stuff is made of. And, and Star Trek gets credit for the laser disc. It's like all our yesterdays, the two engineers are watching the episode. I never got their names. And they're looking at how would you store information on a big silver disc? Well, it was just a bunch of vinyl records painted silver. But they're asking, they look at each other and said, well, if you aimed a laser at the groove and measured the reflection of light, and that was such a brilliant idea that in 19, that was an episode in 1969, five years later, they were demonstrating disco vision, which became the laser disc, which ultimately was the technology that became the CD, the DVD, the Blu-ray, um, etc. Storing data on optical discs is now, you know, it's now taken for granted, but it started with two engineers watching Star Trek and the flip phone, uh, uh, the, the, the tablet, we uh, sliding doors. We saw all that on Star Trek first. Yeah. Yeah. You know, David, when you, had there been enough time that had passed for you to separate your experience with Freiburger to to watch an episode like the Cloudbinders and just be like, you know what? This is a good episode. Do you feel that way no. now? <laughs> no, not the Cloudbinders, because I'm aware of the problem is I've spent most of my life being a writer. And I spent most of my life learning how to be a better writer. It's like, what do I still have to learn? What do I need to learn about characterization, structure, 
the hero's journey? What do I need to learn about stories that aren't the hero's journey? What do I need to learn about how to put a sentence together? And I look at the third season of Star Trek, and there are some moments where I say, that is some terrific writing. And I look at some episodes like Spock's Brain or The Cloud Minders or a couple others and say, that is some truly dreadful writing. So uh, I'm just curious, because we're we're almost at the end of the original series. Is there Do you have kind of final thoughts about you know, your experience on Star Trek in general and how maybe it shaped you as a writer? Let me say this. I, I love Star Trek. I've always loved Star Trek. I think it was one of the greatest shows that television ever attempted. I think Roddenberry broke new ground. I think everybody who worked on the show approached it as, as an, a, a marvelous adventure and uh, a privilege to be there. I know there were some people who came in, like a couple directors, or, you know, said, oh, it's a job. And they didn't do great work. But the, every writer and director and person who came in saying, wow, a chance to do something special, had an opportunity to, uh, uh, you know, regard this not only as a privilege, but this grand adventure. And, and the proof of it is that Star Trek has become this icon of American culture because it touched that nerve of the American adventure, the American monomyth that if we can all get along together, we can do everything. We can do anything. And to me, that is the the true magic of Star Trek. Those who think of it as just a science fiction adventure or just uh, we can make up whatever we want because it's all science fiction or we'll just solve the problem in the last five minutes with some double talk. They're missing the point. Star Trek is a way to talk about the issues that are in front of us with a, 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 to sit, take the issue out of the culture and talk about the issue in, in, it, in its own context and say, what, who are we and what are we up to and what do we want to create? And to me, that was the adventure because that's what science fiction at its best could do. In, in one sense, Star Trek is a McDonald's of science fiction because you get another, you know. A, a, but when we got prime rib, it proved, it proved that Star Trek could be so much more and I wanted to do prime rib. Uh, you know, I, I can drive through McDonald's if my blood sugar is crashing, but I really hanker for, so, you know, uh, chicken cordon bleu or, uh, you know, I, I, want, I want science fiction to disturb the comfort of and, and let you know we can go to the moon, we can go to Mars, but it's going to be hard. And like John F. Kennedy say, we do these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard, because the challenge, we get better taking on those big challenges. The fact that we're having this video conference on desktop computers, the fact that we have these phones that we can put in our pocket and take everywhere we go with us, the fact that we have all this marvelous technology that gives us the finally the ability to really control our impact on the world and, and the technology to understand the impact that we're having, the, the weather satellites and, the, the, and so on. All of that happens because somebody somewhere said, what if maybe we could do this? How do we do this? And that is uh, the, the, the true adventure that science fiction represents. That's a true adventure that of all human earth, uh, desire to, to do something greater than where we are now. You know, the guy who invented the light bulb was working with gas lanterns, you know, it's like, and he's saying, there's got to be a better way to produce a steady stream of light, you know, and, and the guy who invented, yeah, 
Uh, listen, absolutely agree with your points about Star Trek and science fiction. I prefer when it's like, you know, prime rib and not, uh, not McDonald's, but David, you know, just as always, uh, thank you so much for joining us on enterprise incidents and what a completely different experience that you had, uh, with this one than the trouble with tribbles, but we really appreciate your candor and your honesty working at this point. With, with Star Trek, but then, you know, the best was yet to come and just thank you again so very much and, and all the best to you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, whenever you do uh, anything else I can contribute to, please call on me. Cause this is always fun to, uh, uh, you know, my attitude is, yeah, I'm going to say what's so, uh, what are they going to do to me? <laughs> like, right. They can't hurt me. I got, you know, I got my son, I got my daughter-in-law, I got a grandkid. I got one more on the way. I'm having a great time over here. There's nothing anybody can do. It's <laughs> like, yeah, and I get to write the stories I want to write. So, uh, yeah, I'm there having a go. great time over here. And uh, and uh, so anytime I can be a part of what you're up to, please call on me. Will do. Hey, we will, we you, definitely David. will. Have a great weekend. Thank you, David. Well, that was quite the candid, honest interview with David Gerald. And, of course, if anybody knows David Gerald, that is how he rolls. He is honest. Um, but definitely a very interesting insight to what was happening during Star Trek during the end of the third season and uh, and then beyond that. But uh, it's always interesting to hear from David, David Gerald, and we are grateful for his time for joining us for that interview. It was, it was great hearing, great hearing his perspective. He had a lot of thoughts about Star Trek in general, which I really loved. I don't necessarily agree with all of his points, but I totally wish that I could have seen his Castle in the Sky episode in addition to the Cloudminders episode. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I do too. But Jeff Corey, who played Placis, said about the script for the Cloudminders uh, that was ultimately written by Margaret Armin, he said, it was a good script. The story was a metaphor for the condition or state of mind that exists in the best of societies. Certain cliques arrogate privilege and power and callously ignore the labor of others. Placis was a man utterly indifferent to the condition of the have-nots. So I'll, I'll tell you what my final thoughts are, which is that what I really like about this episode is the things that it made me think about. And I've already said some of them in terms of things like hookworm and lead pipes. And I just think what this episode brings out is the importance of looking at the environment rather than just the results. And like another one being is that you see these groups of people that have lower standardized test scores, but you don't look at their facts that the in general, there's a whole group of people, which again are poor people and minorities, where their schools have way less funding, their classes are more crowded, and the facilities are a lot older and run down. And it's like, well, how do we end up with these test scores? You have people that where there's way more issues with obesity, malnutrition, diabetes, heart disease. Well, there are also these places that are called food deserts where it's really hard to get healthy food and only the only food available is like out of convenience stores and fast foods. Well, you're going to have people that are less healthy. There are these, what are the communities that are most vulnerable to all these natural disasters? They're poor communities. You look at whether it's Katrina or just recently with Ian, it's, it's the poorer communities that take the brunt of these natural disasters. These are all environmental things that cause the stuff that we're seeing later on in society. And I think the cloud minders nails this issue. It is really <sighs> staggering. I have to say, I, I always felt that the Cloud Miners was an episode that resonated, quote unquote, today as much as it did when it aired in 1969. But I was really floored during the the course of our conversation of this episode, Steve, 
how much deeper this episode does resonate and how how it, it it's not just class structure, how it is racism and how the troglites are slaves and how you have this whole other, you know, sort of more modern take on it because of the debate about the masks or the mask effective. And, you know, that's something that people have been arguing about since the dawn of the pandemic. And, and again, also just how after sort of being disappointed with some of the later third season episodes, how the cloud minders, regardless of the drama behind the scenes of, of losing David Gerald and Oliver Crawford and going right into Margaret Armin's version of the script, as unpleasant as that must have been to, to a writer like David Gerald. But ultimately, The Cloud Miner is, is, a, is a very, very good late third season episode that is much better than I think I've ever given it credit for. And I always gave it credit for being a really good episode. It's funny. We, we talked about like what is the last great episode of Star Trek and – my feeling had always been that it was probably let that be your last battlefield. Um, and I know that you love all our yesterdays and I'm really looking forward to watching that and seeing where that fits. But at this point for me, this is the last, and I, it's right on the edge of whether or not I'd say it's great. I think it gets pretty close. I, I really do like this episode. a lot. Uh, I agree with you completely. And, and yes, I definitely do think that our yesterdays is, is the last great episode of star Trek and is an episode that I do watch on a regular basis, rewatch on a regular basis. And I, I say that with the, with a rewatch having been done just, you know, maybe a few days ago on our yesterdays. Wow. But what I did not realize, Steve, is how much the cloud minders would have gone up in my reassessment of it. And if you would have, knowing what I know now, if you would have asked me uh, maybe a few weeks ago, what's the last great episode of Star Trek? I would have said, well, there's all our yesterdays. But there is also the Cloudminders. So that's what we think of the Cloudminders. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think. Please visit us on our Facebook page. You can search for Enterprise Incidents or on Twitter. It's Enter Incidents. On Instagram, it's Enterprise Incidents. And, of course, we'd love you to subscribe to the show if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts or YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, all the places you can get your podcast. But if you are on Apple Podcasts and you haven't left us a review, please do so. It means a lot. Even at this late date in the show, it's really important to us. And if you want to support the show, you can do it at Anchor. And the way to get there is on every single episode, wherever you get it, there are show notes. At the top of the show notes is a link. And you could subscribe to Enterprise Incidents for as little as 99 cents a month or as much as $9.99 a month. And if you want to reach me, you can do it on SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And I was thinking about the cinephiles and what movies to talk about here. And, you know, I've already listed movies that dealt with racism when we did Let There Be Your Last Battlefield. But I was thinking about movies where your perception of another group transforms. And there's a lot of movies that deal with these ideas. And one of them is Planet of the Apes, The Searchers with John Wayne, the great musical West Side Story, an incredible episode of The Cinephiles, which is Blade Runner with my good friend Scott Mance, where you get to see the change in perception of the replicants, A League of Their Own, where we change our perception of women athletes, and finally, another episode with my good friend Scott Manch, which is Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. All of these are episodes where we have one perception of a group of people, and that perception changes. And by the way, that perception, that, that change of perception is vintage Star Trek. Something that the Agreed. perception of the Horda, the perception of the Companion, uh, so much. And, you know, I, I actually am down for another rewatch of the Cloud Miners after this conversation. And we hope you feel <laughs> the same way. And I got to say uh, to everyone who's been 
uh, commenting on our Facebook page or commenting on Twitter, uh, people who've been discovering enterprise incidents later in the game. We are glad to have you aboard. We're so glad you found us. We're so happy you're enjoying Enterprise Incidents. And like Steve said, please support us through Anchor. Uh, That would be very, very much appreciated. And please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review of Enterprise Incidents because that has also been really, really great to read what you think of our show. However, next episode of Enterprise Incidents, I cannot believe we are here. Steve Morris, we have five episodes of Star Trek to go in our journey through the original series. And I never thought this moment would come on Enterprise Incidents, but here we are. Our deep dive of probably the most notorious episode of the original Star Trek. Even more notorious than Spock's brain or And the Children's Shall Lead. Up next on Enterprise Incidents, uh, what is sure to be a very enlightening, fun, maybe provocative conversation, our deep dive of The Way to Eden. So don't be a Herbert and join us for the next episode of Enterprise Incidents on The Way to Eden. Until then, keep going boldly.